Switch it up, Jenny. 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 Switch, switch, switch it up. Switch it up, Jenny. Yes, switch it up. Switch it up, Jenny. Hi, my name is Paulina and you're listening to Switch It Up Jenny, a show about people from all around the world who live in New York, or lived, or happened to be here at some point of their life. Amazing people, people with stories. Today I'm going to have even two guests, Kira and Bettina. We had this conversation with them in September when many indigenous groups gathered together to defend standing rocks at the first time. Since then, the situation got much worse, and we'll not talk a lot about this particular confrontation, but I believe it's the right time to talk about indigeneity as a whole, what it actually means and why what, it, what is happening right now in North Dakota is important to each and every one of us. Meet Bettina and Kira somewhere in Soho. Perfect guest for broadcasting because you have a good pronunciation. Oh, nice. So and it's not the music, the background music's not too loud? It's hard to say like um, now because I think the the whole picture will get only when I put it in the computer. Yeah. But I think first of all we don't have any choice. Yes. So we're just gonna go <laughs> so for it. So we're just gonna go for it, and that's it. It was in May, right? Uh, the uh, Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, yeah. right? It was in May. Yeah. We. Um, that's where when we met with you last time. Yes. Um, tell me, how is it the uh, transition from? from the forum to real life I know it's like a very very special feeling I mean for me I find it really hard to transition back into real life I, I find that the permanent forum um, even though I am personally very critical of the UN um, I find that the permanent forum is a rare space that is carved out for indigenous people from all over the world to come together and talk about things that are important to them and things that are happening in their communities. And in a way, it's a really powerful way to strategize. I, I'm still, I still feel very confused about what the UN, the role that the UN is playing or what is happening in, term, in an international level um, as far as nation states are concerned. But in terms of indigenous peoples, um, the amount of work and um, the amount of ideas and solidarity that gets expressed in those two weeks is absolutely incredible. And I found it, to me, it was really empowering to be there. You, you felt like, you felt, I don't know, alone? How, yeah. how did you feel? Like after it was over, you mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I used to live in New York. I don't live in New York anymore. So I have a bus ride to get back to Philadelphia. Um, and on the bus, I was... I just had a... My head and my heart was full of ideas of all of these things that I had learned and all these stories that I had heard, you know? Um, I kind of just kept returning to those ideas. And the, the only way that I could feel... Uh, good about moving forward because I just felt so hollow honestly you know um, was to come up with a project right away to come up with something that I could do that was in relationship to the things that happened at the permanent forum that would allow me to continue like honoring um, the work that was being done there you know and honoring my commitment to that to the struggle of you know rights for indigenous peoples throughout the world 
So will you tell us about the, the, the project? Yeah, I mean, I just have a long-term writing project. Um, I'm essentially trying to deepen my understanding of the struggles. So I spent some time during the forum talking to people, um, people that I didn't know. Um, and the, the writing project that I'm engaged in is, you know, I guess you could, in a simple way, you could call it a report. You know, um, but in a but but in a deeper way, it's just uh, an opportunity for me to engage with um, struggles with indigenous communities that I have no prior contact with. You know, um, but also for me, because of the, the nature of my politics and the way that I engage with these issues in general, it's a way to move forward, right? And to think about because um, I, I feel like the solutions to the, the, the problems that we're seeing right now are going to all come from indigenous communities, you know, or from autonomous communities. Um, so for me, like, doing this, doing this research and continuing these conversations with people outside of the forum um, is helping me to first find the questions and then together um, build the answers. I want to also know how uh, was your transition, Carolee. What did you feel about? You stayed in the city, but still, it was like the forum was, was over. And what did you think? Yep. So I um, felt similarly. Being in the city was nice because I kind of remained, was able to remain close and go to um, other events throughout the the few months. But um, I agree with Bettina that the um, the forum really, what I thought was most special about it was that it really was this gathering space for indigenous peoples to come and network and then kind of um, just build, uh, you know, alliances with each other and kind of work towards, I think, common goals. And I think that um, a lot of the conversations that happen outside of the forum, as Patina said, are, are some of the most important, the side events where you have... Um, you know, representatives of indigenous nations and indigenous people's organizations able to kind of set their own terms for dialogue. And um, right after the forum, actually, I had my graduation. So that was another kind of uh, point where I thought, okay, what's next? But um, I'm excited to start a new position in Connecticut um, congratulations. next month. Thank you. <laughs> so it'll be great. But it's at a, a museum in Washington Depot called the Institute for Indigenous Studies. And they're moving in a direction um, really to highlight um, contemporary indigenous peoples and their resilience and, you know, their presence. So um, that's something that I think is kind of continuing the work that, that I hope to, to be doing. You know what, uh, for me, what was also very important to get you two together because you basically represent indigenous community and you just had a, a, this general, genuine interest to indigenous lives. Uh, so, can you tell me, like you particularly, Kara, uh, how did you get to this? Sure. So, um, I I guess I grew up with um, kind of being raised by my, my dad, who was always very um, kind of like politically conscious and thoughtful. His politic always kind of challenged, um, you know, like the normative kind of nature of like the state. Um, of power relationships between states and between peoples and disparities between peoples. So uh, going into college, I took courses in, um, uh, in literature. That was my major, but I started focusing more so on colonial and post-colonial literature, and then that led me to indigenous literatures, which within that kind of field, there's a big, quite a big pushback against 
post-colonial labeling because it kind of categorizes all peoples who have been formally colonized into one kind of big bag. So um, indigenous people say, no, we have separate and distinct colonial histories. We may share these, but, but our literatures can stand on their own and should be studied um, within a tribal context, within temporal contexts. So um, it was really my, I guess, my literary study that brought me to indigenous people's writing. And I think that um, taking a literary stance toward indigenous issues, you know, not only kind of displays how our whole world, political and all, is structured through narrative, but it um, allows for an understanding of the importance of authorship, self-determination as like codified in indigenous law, and um, the importance of being able to tell your own story, and um, you know, being able to, to listen critically and openly and have uh, responsible dialogues across cultural lines, national lines, political lines. I think this is like particularly important that we not only have like indigenous peoples fighting for their rights, but we also have non-indigenous who support them. And right. Um, so Bettina, tell me your story now. So I was born uh, in Paraguay, in Asuncion, Paraguay, in the early 80s. Um, and my, my story is, you know, I mean, I think it's very particular, but I also think it's a... It, it's a story that's shared by a lot of people, uh, specifically from, um, you know, from South America. Uh, so, my country is, um, we have the, the, the indigenous language of the largest indigenous ethnic group is the official language, along with Spanish, you know? And so, I could really talk about this for a long time, because anything that, that becomes official has its own... Um, issues and problems embedded in it, you know? Um, but ultimately, I guess the, the po positive thing that happened, at least for me, and with relationship to my family, was that I was able to grow up with um, an understanding that I was an indigenous person, right? Which is a, a different from an understanding that a lot of Latin Americans grew up with, with thinking that they are mestizo, right? Um, and, you know, these these issues are, are deeply philosophical and they also live very deeply in the flesh and I think that that's what makes them very interesting and that's what makes them like very productive in the world um, but I'm, I yeah I'm sorry to interrupt did your parents speak Guarani with you? Ev yes everybody speaks Guarani in Paraguay um, you can't function in the country like outside of government and outside of universities if you don't speak Guarani um, and the further you get away from the capital, the more you have to speak Guarani, you know? Most people speak, uh, in, in the capital, most, most people speak what's called Yopara, which means mixture, and it's like a Creole language, uh, it's like Spanglish, but Guarani in Spanish, you know? Um, and the things, like things that are emotional and things that are hum like whether it's something that's funny or whether it's love or whether it's anger, these things are expressed in Guarani. You know, and then there's there's definitely divisions, though. I mean, I think Paraguayans see themselves as uh, being descendants of the Guarani race, but that's what you know that's what we call it, la raza Guarani. But um, I think a lot of them, the you know the way that that identity manifests itself, you know, in relationship to colonization is tricky, and people do see themselves as mestizo. And, mesti and, and then they don't interrogate what mestizo means. So mestizo means mixed, but mixed with what? And when you're mixed, what are you, you know? So these, basically what happened to me was that my family immigrated to the United States when I was eight years old and I lived in Miami and 
I lost this this community that I had, this like this anchor in my life, my root structure, and then I just kind of floated around and felt very confused, and um, and slowly through a process of you know like just my own willpower regained like retained and regained my my indigenous identity you know um with the support of my family and, and my community of course you know but i spent a lot of time trying to understand i felt different from other latino immigrants because i had this language you know that was not a colonial language and um and i know that the that it was the language and 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 I'm not fluent, but the relationship that I have with my language is what, I think it's what saved me, really, you know, and what has allowed me to, um, it's, where I, it's where I get my strength, really. This is a question for you too. Uh, how did you meet and what was happening there? Um, so Kira and I met at the, um, Columbia University has an indigenous rights and studies, indigenous rights and policy program that runs in the summer. Um, and that's where we met. I mean, we, we, you know, we just a few of us ended up in this one spot, and um, and I'm sure that everybody feels the same way about their year, but our year was the best. And <laughs> um, and I think you know we, we became very close, and all of us who participated in the program are still very close. Um, we talk very very regularly. I feel like weekly we communicate. You know, somebody somebody puts something up, and. Um, it was an incredible experience because it was, uh, you know, for indigenous peoples and allies from all over the world. For me, it was incredible because I, right, I'm very isolated from it. My indigenous, my own indigenous community and indigenous people in general in Philadelphia, you know. Um, and so whenever I get to be in a room with other indigenous people, I'm like very happy, you know. So that was meaningful for me, but also I felt like, I mean, and I'm sure that you agree with this, but I learned so much. Like my mind was just blown, you know? And um, just even like engaging with the, um, I like the philosophy stuff, you know? So like the philosophy and then the way that like these concepts be become political, you know? And how differently people engage with it, you know? How are like our comrades and our relations in Africa the way that they relate with their indigenous identity is so different from people in the Americas, you know? Um, and also in the, in the sub subcontinent in India, like I just felt like every moment of the program, I was like, whoa, I have never thought of that before, you know? So it was, it was awesome. Yeah, no, I agree. And it was, um, I think I recall there were 27 of us, and I believe um, we came from 15 different countries. And if I recall as well, there were, I think, seven of us who were non-native. And I think just being, really being in that room was the first time um, through, throughout graduate school even where I was in, really in a room talking about these kind of concepts, philosophical concepts, political concepts with native peoples from all over the world, which was really something that um, I was really nervous about when I was writing my project. I felt like I was falling into these traps of, of being disengaged with the communities that I was writing about, which as all really non-native researchers and scholars know is one of the worst like method methodological um, mistakes that you can make. The work has to be committed to the people that it's about. Um, it has to be you know, work for these people, not just for, you know, your own aggrandizement or career. So 
and being it's probably especially important working with indigenous issues exactly yeah exactly so just to to be able to kind of understand even more so and even more personally how important this kind of work is within a real lived situation I think was was really remarkable and and just the amount that I learned as well um, I also kind of veer more towards the philosophy and theory side of um, side of learning so just everything that people brought to the table we had um, government we had kind of people who worked in foreign ministries we had um, PhDs we had graduate students um, people who worked for human rights uh, NGOs and just yeah lawyers and I mean just the wealth of kind of um, areas and experience and expertise all brought together really made me see how important inter interdisciplinary um, approaches are in this in this field um, because we really need to pull from I think everywhere that we can and it just was really remarkable to, to learn from so many different people but I also think for me as like someone who works in humanities it was um, a point where I had never really engaged with international law standards and indigenous law and so to understand how important that is within humanities scholarship, literary scholarship was really kind of a turning point as well. The uh, classes they uh, didn't take place only in the Columbia University, right? right. So can you tell me like about the, the trips that you did? Mohawk Nation, the St. Regis Reservation by the border with Canada and upstate New York. Um, and I mean, that was really meaningful. It's always meaningful for me as an indigenous person to be on reservation land, um, specifically because there's um, there's a powerful sense of sovereignty, and that that sense of sovereignty is really important, right? And like like the history of reservations, like they're all like each one has a unique history, but you know it is the reservation itself is part of a genocidal project, right? And so you always have to keep that in mind when you're in that space. But um, it also because because indigenous people are resilient, you know, um, and refuse to be colonized. It also is a space of autonomy, you know, and it's a space of uh, resurgence of culture. Um, and for me, that was the powerful thing about the the, the Mohawk Reservation, right? I mean, um, we went to the most powerful thing was, you know, not only like sitting with the elders for sure, with the with the traditional council, you know, but. Um, I really liked going to the school. Um, I loved walking into a place and seeing that all of the signs were in the Mohawk language, you know? And I loved walking around and listening to children speaking in their indigenous language. For me, that was a really powerful experience. And um, that is the work, right? That's the work that we, we're all engaging with and we're all trying to do, you know? Um, and yeah, I mean, it was it was cool. What was the kind of this aha moment, like a lesson that you learned and will never forget? Something particular, like something very specific um, from that course that you remember. Maybe it was like a person. Maybe it was this, something that this person said. Something that will stay with you. Um, well, my favorite memory of the trip was from when we were in Aguasasni. And it was actually, um, the, I believe, the last night that we were there. And the plan was we had uh, toured the, the school. We had gone um, and uh, toured the tribal police headquarters, the 
the judges' headquarters, the tribal court. Um, and after that, the plan initially was that we were going to order pizzas and have dinner back at our hotel. And the chief of tribal police, Matt, actually, um, and his parents, whose names were Marshall and Janine, welcomed us to their home, a beautiful home on the banks of like the St. Lawrence River. And we spent the, the evening there, sitting outside, um, going on golf cart rides, you know, taking out canoes and paddle boats. And it was, I think that was just the, the moment where I started to realize the warmth of welcome that they gave us. And it makes me emotional, but just how warmly we were welcomed and how graciously, you know, we were brought, you know, to their home and welcomed as members of their family. And it really, at that point in time, I realized that this is what Indigenous ethics, like all my relations, can mean for us all, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And we as non-Natives have so much to learn from Indigenous communities. So that for me was, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. Thank you so much, Carol. Um, hmm. My, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole, like I said, the whole pro program for me was really amazing, but I think that my, um, my, I don't know if it's my aha moment, but it's definitely something that I feel like I think about a lot. Um, I was, so colonization looks different in different places, and, and you know, it's it's important to think about it in those terms, right, in, in, in the ways in which it is, like, uh, an, a unique process in, in different places. And I was trying to, I had never engaged with the history of colonization in Africa as deeply, you know? as I did with this program and and I had never gotten I had never had an opportunity to speak with in you know indigenous people from Africa you know it's not something that I spent any time thinking about um, and you know our our friends and comrades in the program from the Mbororo community they completely um, for me transformed the way that I think about the formation um, and the sustaining of indigenous identity. What I'm always learning from them is that a big part of indigenous identity is not just the blood, but it is the way of being. It's a way of being in the world, you know? And it's very much, of course, about about your your blood relations and the way that your blood is connected to the earth, to a part of the earth, you know, um, but but a critical component to one's indigeneity is honoring what it means to be an indigenous person in a, in a complex, meaningful, and and of course contemporary way. You know, nobody's saying to 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 live uncontemporary lifestyles. Uh, that actually reminds me this moment when. Um the DNA professor uh, mentioned that there is no, that like there is no such word as culture in in my community, um, and it's it's just incredible because yes, there is no culture. It's just being. Right. It's just being. You know. And what it means to be is a complicated, nuanced thing that is both related to the land and also related to. The, the members of your community, you know. There was just something for me especially powerful about what Bororo people are doing um, in in Cameroon, you know, that I, that I found just to be 
just I was just inspired by them, you know, just to state it simply, I was inspired and and, and talking to them and um, and learning about Bororo Bororo Fulani ways. I feel like it revealed things to me about my own self, you know, uh, about my own um, my own community. You know, and I think that that's something that it's not just unique to indigenous communities, but I think it's something that a lot of indigenous people feel when we relate to each other. You know, um, that's beautiful. Yeah, so it's always cool. Very, very beautiful. To like finish our conversation, I want to um, to speak about this recent moment in North Dakota and what happened, and what do you think about it? Do you think this will lead to some advancement in terms of? Um, supporting indigenous rights or do you think that eventually nothing gonna happen and uh, this pipeline will be built and like, everything uh, will be like it is planned by the government I have a lot of thoughts on this um, <laughs> I mean I think that what's happening in Standing Rock is um, it is stopping the pipeline it is it is happening right now you know so like the the important thing for me to always think about life is that life is this moment it's not the past it's not the future it's this moment and right now the pipeline is stopped you know and that's all that matters um, because that's the work that's being done in this very moment you know and in terms of the reverberations that this work has for indigenous people throughout the Americas and throughout the world, you know, it's very visible. It's very visible because it's happening in the United States. You know, let's be real about that, you know. Um, and it's it's creating an opportunity, like it's creating that energy where people are coming together, their people are getting strength from it, you know. And it's the largest gathering of indigenous people um, in the Americas, you know, in resistance that's happened since the 70s. Um, so the question as to whether or not like it will actually stop the pipeline that's a question of political will you know um and i'm not i'm, I'm not able to answer for white politicians you know or for politicians in general they have to answer that question themselves you know i have my feelings about them um and you know i think that the the nature and the purpose of capitalism is to destroy the environment and to destroy all life you know um so we have to struggle you know that's that's what that's what the pipeline protests are about you know they're about life they're about defending water and life you know so the struggle lies there and the struggle is everywhere there's all kinds of struggles going on throughout um the americas in relationship to uh, corporations and governments taking over sacred sites or taking over indigenous land, which it all is indigenous land, right? Um, but I think it's a powerful, it's absolutely a powerful moment and there are, um, I mean, I am an optimist and I know that we are going to win. Um, and, and I just know it. I just know it, and I don't and I don't just mean the pipeline in North Dakota. I mean um, indigenous rights and indigenous sovereignty in general. You know, um, 
and through you know through our own work in our own communities and also through the support of our allies which you know we have so many allies so yeah i feel really confident but it's a lot of work and politicians suck and nation state nation states have to seize existing and that's going to take a long time you know <laughs> so another this ties into our our previous question but another really i think profound shift of consciousness that i had at columbia was when bettina gave a presentation so we each gave a presentation um and hers was uh basically explicating her view on um anarchism and indigenous forms of governance and prior to this um, presentation I kind of always politically identified as a socialist as kind of a liberal left progressive any of those terms that we use here in the states and Bettina really just showed that anarchism isn't this politic this destructive politic it's actually a restorative politic when we approach it from a non-western lens it's not um, a politic of anti-governance um just one that critiques the the basic foundation of the state the violence of the foundation of the state of the um you know manifestations that continue to keep the state in place so i think that that really ties into any of our questions about indigenous sovereignty and indigenous movements so long as the state controls discourse you know will there be that political will for for non-natives to start to think critically about what it means to be a settler on indigenous land and i think that what's scary is that a lot of kind of not the hope but a lot of the the power most much of the power is in the hands of non-native peoples and settler peoples so the question is how do we inform them and kind of shift their kind of um approaches to think more critically about their identities and about um the indigenous peoples whose territory we occupy So but I I have a great hope that um you know that the this indigenous movement I mean this the Standing Rock Sioux was on the front page of the New York Times that's huge yeah right that's so true. I have it's it's getting a lot of um kind of public um attention. public commentary and attention and I I hope that you know through all of you know these different kind of um soapboxes you know we'll we'll be able to kind of all work together and I love that. I love that ending that we have right now. <laughs> so let me thank you first and let me uh wish you um best of luck with your new um endeavor if I can say so. Uh, and uh, I also wish you uh, luck in many of endeavors that you have. Right thank now. you. <laughs> thank you so much, Gosa. I think it was like I really enjoyed conversation as usual. It was switched up Jenny. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher.